I'm Dr. Derek Cohen, and this is the Foundation Podcast. Well, we are finally here. The 60-day mark has come and gone. This means the general bill filing deadline has passed. However, it also means that the constitutional moratorium on advancing legislation has also passed. There was a flurry of filing with 290 bills being filed on Monday, 323 on Tuesday, 469 on Wednesday, 663 on Thursday, and at the time of this noon recording, 298 so far on Friday for a sum total of 2,043 bills last week. Last week also saw several key hearings, most notable of which was in House State Affairs. The committee opened with invited testimony of Arthur DeAndrea, the last remaining commissioner at the Public Utility Commission, to speak on the issue of repricing. We'll be joined by Vance Ginn momentarily to discuss this issue as well as other looming budget questions. This coming week, we'll see a broad spectrum of action in the House. Similar to our discussion last week, child welfare reform will continue in juvenile justice and family issues as HB 576 and 1319 will be heard. Over in criminal justice, there will be four civil asset forfeiture bills up, and those are HB 132, which raises the burden of proof to clear and convincing evidence and prohibits adoptive forfeitures of under $50,000. Now remember, civil asset forfeiture is the process by which the government can take control of your property without so much as an official criminal allegation against you. Paired with that is HB 251 which would actually require a criminal conviction and create the doctrine of criminal forfeiture going forward. Similarly, HB 667 will create a uh, conviction requirement and in turn require a court to dismiss a forfeiture action upon proof of a dismissal or acquittal. Last but not least, HB 1441 is what's known as the innocent owner defense. And this will require the state to have to prove that an innocent owner knew their property was going to be used by a third party for illicit means, then that innocent owner having to prove that they didn't. On Tuesday in Land and Resource Management, the committee will be hearing HB 1348, a bill prohibiting municipal entities from promulgating onerous regulations on charter schools. And we look forward to additional postings as they come. And now joining me is Vance Ginn. Vance, so the big thing in the legislature last week was the discussion on repricing. Can you explain to the listeners what that whole controversy was all about? You know, Derek, this has been a complicated situation. Just given what happened that week of the power outages, which many people suffered through, um, you did, I did, many people did overall. And when they're going back and thinking about what happened during that period, Electricity rates just went through the roof, the scarce scarcity of electricity situation that we were in. And there's this $9,000 cap that it went up to for a while. And um, now there's some concern about, well, how long should it have been at $9,000 per kilowatt hour, right? And to that extent, should we go back and reprice some of that? Was it there at $9,000 too long, you know? And so there's this consideration of does repricing equals a bailout? And the answer is yes, it does equal a bailout. And it's something that we shouldn't do. And part of this is thinking about it from a market, free market perspective, that prices send signals. It's all about information that's being given out throughout that time period. And it was an unfortunate situation, but this has been leading up to a number of government failures for a while. 
When you think about the subsidies that have been provided for wind and solar and propping them up for a long period of time and more of the generation capacity moving in that direction to unreliable sources of energy compared to reliable sources of energy. When you think about nuclear, natural gas and those types of thermal sort of energies that we have out there. And so what that has done is made it to we've had less reliable sources of energy on the market. And that can create a situation where whenever those fell off, wind and solar fell off, you had a, a position where there was less generation of electricity in the marketplace, drove up the prices and created this situation. So instead of the government coming in to try to correct the problem, which was a government failure problem to begin with, we really need to allow for the market forces to work. And so if you come in and the government says, you know what, we need to reprice all this stuff. You just make a bad situation worse. So let's get to the bottom of this. Let's continue to have some discussion at the legislature and experts thinking about what's going on here. But at the same time, think about how what consumers are paying. Think about the the concern and the struggle that Texans are going through um, throughout this whole process. And I think once we put all this together, we're going to get a better idea of what the true cost is. Even when you had the PUC commissioner come in and they said, no, it wasn't $16 billion. It's closer to $3 billion. And then the estimates are all over the place. Do we really even know what the true cost of this is? And so there's a lot of question around that. And instead, I think what we don't need to reprice this at all. We really need to let the markets work and allow for us to have a better system moving forward. Let me ask you a follow up on that. Uh, You can simplify it for me. So this is activity that is already cleared at the spot price of $9,000 per kilowatt hour. So that has already been priced into the market and the market activity during that time, correct? Correct. So how do we go back in the past? We get a DeLorean, we get it going 88 miles an hour, lightning strikes, and then we reprice the market. How would that actually work? First of all, that'd be awesome if we had a DeLorean, uh, but we don't. And so you would have to go back in and change up all the contracts, all the exchanges that happened in that period of time. There's a lot of investment that goes on, right? And the exchange of hands of those markets. And that's what is in a market is you have somebody that's supplying and is willing to buy at that market at the same time selling the generation capacity. And if you start repricing things, what else are we going to reprice in the process? And so we've got to be really careful about not making this situation worse, which is a government failure problem. It's difficult for government to correct a government failure problem. So what can we do to start to free the overall system from some of these problems uh, moving forward? And I know the legislature is looking at this. I think we'll end up getting to the bottom of it at the end of the day. And ultimately, we need to reduce or eliminate the subsidies that are going to wind and solar. Ultimately, it would be nice for the federal government to get rid of these production tax credits. They're unlikely to. So when you think about Chapter 313 subsidies that are going there, why don't we get rid of those? If you think about other ways that the state is starting to prop up wind and solar. Let's get rid of that as well. And that will help to create a more level playing field for all the sources of energy that we have here in Texas, which are a lot, you know, a lot of jobs tied to these sources of energy as well. Well, let me ask you a more practical applied question. Obviously, there are many retailers in many different positions during this whole process. So going back, repricing, would that not ensure that some folks who had hedged, some folks who had actually correctly read market forces, correctly even weatherized and winterized, doesn't that mean their downstream consumer will then be eating the cost of that loss from the repricing? It would. It, It would also lead to a potential moral hazard issue where you create even more risk taking. If we're going to start repricing things, then why would you winterize? Why would you take good, make good decisions throughout this process um, whenever you could make it profitable over time because the government's just going to come in and bail you out? 
And so we don't need to get into the practice of bailing out people within the electricity market, just like we shouldn't in other markets as well, because it creates a moral hazard issue, which makes the situation worse. Well, Vance, last time we had you on, we spoke ad nauseum about the appropriations process. So I think it's time to give the people what they want, some hot budget talk. Since then, we've had movement on that gargantuan $1.9 trillion, well, let's just call it a COVID bill. What's in the bill? What's not in the bill? And what does that mean for this state? Well, what's definitely not in the bill is much relief. It's the American Rescue uh, Plan Act of 2021, but I don't really know what we're rescuing. If anything, I think we are rescuing a situation that's just going to lead to additional people on welfare programs for a longer period of time. Many people have struggled across the Texas and across the country. Um, if you think about just in Texas right now, the unemployment rate is hovering around 7%. We were at half of that before the pandemic started last year. And so we need to get back to that sort of prosperity that we have. Fortunately in Texas, we just reopened, right? So that's a, that's a good sign. Get business capacity open again, more jobs being created in the process. That will all be really important. And I think that's the, the number one thing that we should be doing is more states opening up to get more job creation and get people back in the workforce where they have that dignity and the self-sufficiency. And instead, what we see in this $1.9 trillion package from Congress and all their wisdom is that we have more checks that are being sent out. We have an increase in the unemployment insurance payments of $300 per week to where many people are going to see, look, you can either go to work or get unemployment benefits. And if you're getting paid the same amount or maybe even a little bit more in unemployment benefits, what are you more likely to do? Probably take the unemployment benefits. So it has this weird trade-off between work versus leisure. And a lot of people are going to choose leisure instead. So you're incentivizing that sort of activity. And then it has money for states and local governments, $350 billion there. Um, and then it's just a lot of other programs, more money to Medicaid um, and more expansion of welfare programs that are out there overall. And so what I'm really concerned about is that we may be leading ourselves into another great society sort of situation that we had back in the 1960s that didn't go over very well. Massive expansions of government. When this happens, you get a lot of money going out into the system and you also start to see inflation picking up. There's the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities tips, which have been negative for a while. They started to move positive. So that means you have inflation that's already picking up across the economy and distortions throughout the marketplace from an economic situation. That's not good. And so in Texas, I think what you're going to see is this is going to hurt our overall economic growth just at the time when we are trying to open up and get more people jobs and things of that nature. And it's another reason why we've really got to have the responsible recovery agenda that the Texas Public Policy Foundation has been promoting for a while. I think if we start putting these things in place, less taxing, less regulating, less spending, Overall, we can put ourselves in a better position to flourish. Well, you know, direct stimulus uh, layered on top of uh, pent up demand. How could that cause inflation? You know, yes. Uh, but moving on into specifically the Texas nuts and bolts. So I think we can say and while estimate on the number is fluid at the moment, Texas is going to get a windfall like many other states. Again, we can talk about the use of that money and, you know, whether or not that money should come. I think you and I are relatively on the same page there. But how could that money be used responsibly to further the interests of Texas pursuant to the pandemic? Yeah, Derek. So, I mean, when you think about Texas and out of this $350 billion, that's quote unquote flexible funding that we could receive, we could receive about $17 billion just out of that money. If you look at the total amount of money that Texas could receive, we could receive $43 billion. Just think about that. We've got a $250 billion biennial budget. Break that down into two. We're at $120 billion, $125 billion. 
We've already received $40 billion in just one year. That's massive. It's about a third, 33% increase increase in our overall budget in one year. Um, and so part of that's going to be for education. Part of that's going to be for infrastructure types of projects. You have $10 billion to local governments across the state and then $17 billion just to the state of Texas that they could have a little bit of free reign of what to do with. At a time when we are already flush with cash, we've already balanced our budget. They've been able to cut some from the great work by the state leaders to say we need cut to 5% from some state agencies. That already has balanced our budget. We don't need additional money. And there's some concern that we may not even know where to spend this money. And so there should be a discussion about whether we should reject all or some of this money, especially given the strings that are attached to education and other places. With all their wisdom up in Congress, they also made it to where they restrict the use of the funds for tax relief. So one way that we were thinking here was to use some of this $17 billion and strengthen the Texas model, provide more money in people's pockets instead of more money in government and their coffers. But you can't do that now. And so we couldn't provide margins tax relief. There's a question of what, whether or not they could even provide property tax relief. Whenever we're considering how we should provide a pro-growth long-term strategy with these dollars, it makes it very difficult on what to do because of all those strings attached. But some things we might want to look at are these other post-employment benefits. Like, oh, they're called OPEBs. Right. And it's basically like the cares that's provide for retirement retirees and type of teachers and government employees. Um, that might be a way to look at it because those are unfunded liabilities. Other ways are, you know, sort of infrastructure projects that maybe are one time items throughout the budget. And then that way you can bank. Put, a, put, a, put a, the general revenue, the, our state taxpayer dollars into the rainy day fund and store those for a rainy day or store them for tax relief in the future, whenever we can be able to do this. But I mean, with this tax relief provision that they have in there, we may not as a, as a state be able to cut taxes until 2025, meaning this session we couldn't do tax relief and next session we couldn't do tax relief. It's breaking up the federalism argument that we have that's so beautiful about the founding of our country. I'm concerned that this will also mean less sovereignty of the great state of Texas that will create a situation that will lead to more dependency on the federal government. I just got out of the White House not too long ago coming from D.C. I don't want them to come back here. We don't want to be in the swamp. Right. And so we need to allow for Texas to really flourish. And I think we need to look strongly of areas to, to reject of these amount of money that's coming to Texas. OK, well, let's throw a blanket over that one point nine trillion. Oh, hurts to say. Throw a blanket over the 1.9 trillion. Forget all these strings that are attached. Pretend that doesn't exist. If you were looking at the question of tax relief, broadly defined, are there any opportunities to address taxes in Texas this this session? I think so. I mean, w- even when you're looking at the budget that we had even before the COVID money comes down, which is going to put us close to $30 trillion in national debt, if you can think about that, massive. Texas should really be looking at cutting our business margins tax which is a gross receipt style tax. It's a horrible form of taxation um, that hurts businesses, which means it hurts us because they just pass along those higher taxes in the form of lower wages, fewer jobs, and higher prices, right? If there's a way to cut the business margin tax would be huge. Property tax relief is something that we continue to need because that's hurting residents, those who own homes, and even those who rent all across the state. So if you can provide property tax relief, that would be another big thing. They provided $5 billion in property tax relief last session. There's $6 billion that's already in the budget now that would maintain that property tax relief from last session. But we don't 
want to just maintain. We want additional relief um, that's out there. And so I think that there's some good plays that could still happen. There's a couple of bills that we're looking at that would actually be a, a, a trigger bill to where if revenue goes up above a certain level, above 4%, use the 4% for savings, let's say. The rest of it, you could buy down property taxes until they were eliminated, at least the school maintenance and operation portion, which is about half the property tax bill in Texas. You could do that in about a decade. And so I think that's another good bill that we can look at. In any way that we can start to restrain government spending, which is the conservative Texas budget sort of method that we talked about before, putting in place something like that in statute with a spending limit based on population growth plus inflation. Limiting spending provides additional room for tax relief, which also can allow for regulatory relief because if you don't spend it, you also can't regulate it. And so we need to start putting all these things together. And that's really what will strengthen the Texas model. Excellent. Well, Vance, I thank you for joining us here today. And, you know, if anyone has any suggestions on how to spend $18 billion, I'm sure they can get them to us. And or you and I can decide on how to build a bridge to everywhere or or (laughs) some other uh, federal uh, funded project there. But Vance, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Derek.